This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. All right, and the clock has just gone nine minutes past the hour of 11 o'clock. We're in the final run of Power Talk this Thursday morning. Let's talk about perceptions of corruption. I made a slight reference to it earlier on. The 2023 Corruption Perceptions Index, CPI, was released by Transparency International uh, this past week. And it shows that most countries in the world have really made little progress in tackling public sector corruption or the perceptions thereof. Um, the global average remains unchanged at 43 for a 12th year in a row. And two-thirds of the countries really scored below uh, 50 points. So let's find out why that is and why it seems as though most countries in the world, when perceived corrupt, don't try to fix that in terms of reputation of national brand or nation brand uh, and then in terms of institution building. We're in conversation now with Francois Valerian, the chairperson of Transparency International. Good morning. Good morning, Rato. Oh, and you're uh, joining us from France. Yes, okay. I am. Okay. Well, it's really nice to talk to you. Bonjour. Um, so, <laughs> so let's talk about the corruption perception index. And I want to underscore the word perception because a perception is how people see you. It doesn't necessarily make it true. But how do people perceive many countries in the world that are deemed corrupt? Well, uh, you're right to emphasize the word perception. Uh, the issue that we have with corruption is that by nature it is hidden. So we also have to rely on perceptions to try to uh, understand the problem and how to address it. Yeah. Now, the Corruption Perceptions Index is an index whereby we calculate averages of uh, perceptions, judgments, assessments of corruption coming from a variety of sources for 180 countries in the world. And the result of that index also corresponds to what our chapters on the ground in almost 100 countries are observing, is that countries are not making much progress in the fight against corruption. Mm. And why is that? Why is that? Because uh, over the past tens of years, there has been progress in having laws against corruption, in having institutions against corruption. But what is still missing in most countries is to have an independent judicial power with the resources needed to adequately fight corruption, to prosecute the corrupt, to threaten them, to have deterrent sanctions that will prevent further corrupt deeds. And that is the new frontier in the fight against corruption having independent judicial systems that make the the anti-corruption laws and the anti-corruption institutions work and adequately fight corruption. Mm. So so really an ecosystem of institutions that hold people accountable because you can't really change people's behavior, but you can 
uh, address the consequences of that behavior? Well, uh, I would not entirely agree with you when you say you can't change people's behavior. Mm. We think that you can change people's behavior when you show them the consequences Mm. of their deeds. If people who are tempted by corruption do not uh, are not frightened by the consequences of what they do, okay. yes, they are corrupt and they go into corrupt deeds. But when they see that there are possible sanctions, that mm. they may be jailed, that yeah. they may be punished, yes, their behavior can change. Okay, fair enough. I think, I guess my, my terminology is wrong. Human nature is human nature, but if there are consequences, sure. then people's uh, behavior can be moderated, is what you're saying. It can right, be a deterrent. Right, okay, right. I appreciate that um, intervention. Okay, what's the methodology that was used to rank countries in the perceptions of corruption? The methodology is that we have 13 different sources coming from uh, various institutions, uh, think tanks, research institutes around the world. And we are uh, looking at what they publish in terms of scores, and we are calculating averages. And that's how we proceed. So those are not polls among citizens. We have another tool, which is a global corruption barometer, where we are asking citizens on the ground on what they think about corruption in their country. And both tools are complementary. But here, it's more the global judgment on every country. And this judgment matters because uh, it is also a matter of trust. And if, for example, investors um, perceive a country as corrupt, corrupt within the public sector, within Mm -hmm. the government, they may not be incited to work with this country, to invest in this country. So that's one thing. But the most important thing is that corruption makes a lot of victims. And that's our main concern, is that corruption is uh, something that harms common good. And it is part of a global economy of corruption, which is harming common good and which is making a lot of victims which are, who are deprived of the basic public services that their government yeah. should deliver. Yeah, okay, so public money being siphoned away instead of being used for um, the broader mandate of providing basic services to all people equitably. That's what corruption does, and that's what you mean by uh, victims of corruption. You said it's important to strengthen laws and institutions, and you in particular referenced the judiciary. So in a lot of countries that haven't done well uh, in this uh, perceptions index, you said one of the biggest issues was not having a well-resourced and independent judiciary. Explain to us why that matters. Yes, we have um, two problems. The first problem is a problem that almost all countries suffer from, and it's true of Africa, it is true of Europe, the Americas, Asia, is that the judiciary systems are not staffed and resourced enough. So you don't have enough money, you don't have enough people. Uh, It may be because of general budgetary constraints. It is often because of lack of political will to adequately fight corruption. And now you have a situation which is 
much more serious. It is when the judiciary system is being captured by corrupt interests in some countries by organized crime. And those private corrupt criminal interests are using the judiciary system to protect their wrongdoing or even to uh, favor those wrongdoings by intimidating civil society organizations, intimidating investigative journalists. So that's a further step. So it's beyond not resourcing enough the judiciary system. It is capturing the judiciary systems to serve corruption. Mm, okay, and so and 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 as you say, judiciary. I'm hearing you talk holistically. It's law enforcement officers who may be on the take, as as Americans say, who may be in the pockets of mafias in some countries. It's judges who may be persuaded to rule in a particular way, politically or financially. And then it's the harassment and intimidation of whistleblowers and civil society who talk. And if and if all of those pillars aren't strong, uh, then it allows corruption to fester. Right, right. And that's what we see to, to, to take examples in uh, uh, other continents, for example. That's what we've recently seen in Ecuador, in uh, South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, in December, there was a vast operation against um, people who were working in those services captured by organized crime. And very high officials in the judiciary system were, were arrested. So it's one illustration of what you've just said. All right. So another terminology that's used and that features in the uh, report is good governance. Uh, And I'm wondering here, you know, what do we mean by it? So it's vigilant technocrats administering services. But what about people? What about ordinary citizens when we witness what we suspect to be corruption and speaking up? whistleblowing in and amongst ourselves, how strong are are, are people's propensity to do that? I think that many people uh, would like to be able to report on the corrupt deeds that they witness. Mm. Now, these people need to have the means to do so. And, uh, well, there are uh, apps, for example, in many countries that have been developed to... um, allow people to do that. But more than that, they have to be protected. They have to feel that they can do it safely. And it is a challenge. And it is what we are working on with our Transparent International chapters and with special uh, entities, units that are there to advise whistleblowers on their rights and to help them and to support them. And it is clearly something that we need because without the citizens, without the citizens reporting on the corruption that they are witnessing, we won't make much progress. Citizens are needed in the fight against corruption and citizens are needed to monitor this good governance you rightly refer to. Okay. So one of the things we've witnessed in a country like South Africa is that There are agencies that have been set up to investigate corruption uh, at various levels, uh, elite policing, 
Uh, and in fact, this year uh, or last year, a law was promulgated to actually f- uh, formalize the National Prosecuting Authority as a principal body to investigate public sector corruption in the country. So you do have these institutions being set up. And yet, historically, when corruption is revealed, I would say in the majority of cases, I can't put a number to it, it's what the media, what the media has exposed through its investigative channels. So there is a very vibrant media that ends up doing half of the work that the law enforcement agency should have been doing in the first place. Right, right. So, uh, well, um, as you know, I am not South African, so I will not comment in details on the South African situation. We have in South Africa a vibrant TI chapter, which is Corruption Watch, and is working a lot on those matters. Now, what I can say is that what we see in South Africa we see it as well in a number of other countries. You have, as you say, all the institutions that are provided for by rule of law. You have a vibrant civil society. You have uh, investigative journalists. You have the media as, uh, as yourself. And as you say, there are a number of corruption deeds, of corrupt deeds that are being revealed by the media. That is fine. Now, there are two types of corruption scandals. There are the corruption scandals on which justice is not acting. And there are the corruption scandals on which justice is acting. Mm. And that is the challenge to us. And you mentioned the NPA and a body Mm. like the NPA has to be empowered and strengthened and Mm -hmm. has to have the means to do what they are supposed to do. But it is something that is not mm. only uh, in South Africa. It is the challenge that we are facing yeah. now in many countries. Yeah, I think the question really for me was the fact that, you know, when the media almost has to become the principal watchdog, you know, some would say it's good for democracy. But I, I, from where I'm sitting, I'm saying not at all. The other institutions must step up. But we just seem to see journalists going above and beyond is really the point I was making. Right, right. And uh, you're right. We, we need to see more cases that would be brought up by the bodies themselves, by the, by the institutional uh, well, law enforcement yeah. agencies. So that's true. We need both. Uh, in, in all countries, you also have corruption cases that are being revealed by the media. But it is true that it's not up to the media to do the entire job. Yeah. Okay. So when a situation is compounded by war, you know, so monitoring and managing public institutions in an environment of conflict and war, uh, does that really open the sluice gates for even more uh, infractions and infringements? Well, uh, it obviously considerably changes the, the situation. I'm thinking of uh, what's happening in a neighboring country yes. in uh, Mozambique with the war in Cabo Delgado and uh, all um, the, uh, well, the corruption aspects that are linked to, um, 
well, the military uh, efforts there and also uh, the, the considerable increase in the number of, of, of victims and the difficulty to uh, operate under, under such conditions. Mm. Now, you may also have uh, countries which are pushed by a situation of war to uh, address the corruption issues. It's the case of Ukraine, for example, mm-hmm. uh, right now. But it is true that uh, a war is, uh, well, war is terrible, and it is also terrible for the fight against corruption. And you may see that at the very bottom of our CPI list, you have uh, countries which are suffering from terrible civil wars and where, well, the state no longer exists. Mm. That's that's really quite true. Okay, so let's talk about the countries that have seen a material improvement in their uh, corruption perceptions uh, index. In other words, those that have made interventions and uh, seem to be reducing corruption. What did they do? Well, let's let's take the example of a country in southern Africa, which is Zambia. Mm. So Zambia saw an improvement by four points, which is very substantial uh, this year, so from 33 to 37. And uh, there have been a number of institutions and processes that have been put in place, that's one thing. But what's more important is that you have had a considerable elevation of the fight against corruption under the current government. I am not saying that uh, corruption is being solved yeah. in Zambia. It's solved in no country at all. But but there has been an improvement. And back to what I was saying on um, corruption scandals, there has been a corruption scandal that has been revealed by civil society and by TI, Transparency International Zambia that affected the Ministry of Finance. So it's been revealed by the civil society, but the justice has been active on that. And when justice starts being active on the cases and efficient on the cases, yes, it is the best way to try to improve the CPI score and more fundamentally to defeat corruption in the country. Okay, and so other countries that have also seen uh, material uh, improvements uh, are Ireland... South Korea, Armenia, Vietnam, Maldives, Angola, and as you're saying, uh, Zambia and a few others as well. And the sooner you prosecute and get convictions and get a sense that there's punishment, it makes it better is what I'm hearing you say, Francois Valerian. Right, right, right. Okay, there is a question from a listener, uh, and I think it's an interesting question. Uh, Prince K is uh, the name he goes by. And Prince K says, Lerato, it's always assumed from a perception point of view that Switzerland is one of the least corrupt nations, one of the most peaceful nations, well-run, well-governed nations in the world. However, it's an established fact that proceeds of corruption in other countries find their way into Swiss banks. And there have been challenges to have Swiss banks reveal the holders of their accounts as a way of trying to get to grips with illicit flows. So how does Switzerland exist as a country that has a low corruption perception index and yet financial institutions in Switzerland are the holders of proceeds of alleged corruption? 
Well, I would like to thank Prinske for this very, very important question. We have to talk about the global economy of corruption. What is the global economy of corruption? You have public money and resources which are being stolen in many countries. And the profits from this theft are being hidden in offshore centers and invested in a few countries, mostly in the north, in Switzerland, in France, in the UK, in the US, in other countries. The Corruption Perceptions Index is only capturing the first step. So the public money and resources that are being stolen and bezeled in many countries. That's the first step that is very important to know and understand. Now, there are further steps in this global economy of corruption, and you're right to say that Switzerland, as well as France, as well as the UK, as well as our Central, as well as Singapore, which is also uh, on top of the list here, uh, are involved so that all countries have to fight the global economy of corruption. The Corruption Perceptions Index is an interesting tool, but which only offers a, a, a view of the first step, the initial step of this global economy of corruption. Okay, thank you so much for your time, Francois Valerian. Uh, and as we say goodbye to you, Francois, the issue is that, you know, we're seeing steady regression with two-thirds of the countries scoring below 50. Is there something about the time we are in that's making this regression more palpable? Uh, And uh, are we likely to see an improved condition going forward, given whatever your answer is? Well, uh, it is true that we see adverse winds that are blowing against the fight, uh, the anti-corruption fight. And those are winds from a number of political leaders who are trying to explain that authoritarian solutions, that absence of rule of law are good for the people and are more efficient. So that's Mm. clearly a threat to our anti-corruption fight. Now, what makes us within Transparency International optimistic is that we now have, and we have had for years, a global civil society asking for more justice. And our conversation this morning is the proof of the existence of this global civil society, which goes beyond frontiers and is asking for justice. Thank you so much. It's been really enlightening. Francois Valerian, Chairperson of Transparency International. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.